Okay. Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, December 17th, 2020. Tonight is the eighth night of Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah to everyone. I am so grateful to every single one of you for carving out the time to spend time so that we can study together. I thank you very, very much. It is wonderful to be together with you tonight. As I mentioned, tonight is the eighth night of Hanukkah. And as all of the lights of the menorah are lit tonight, the eighth night of Hanukkah, let's consider first the menorah itself the original menorah that was lit in the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, by the Hashmonayim, when the miracle that led to the establishment of the holiday of Hanukkah. What did that menorah look like? So, the classic depiction of the menorah is the relief on the Arch of Titus in Rome which is also the most powerful depiction of the Horban, of the destruction of the second base Amigdash. That relief on the Arch of Titus shows the menorah being taken away from Jerusalem along with Jewish slaves taken to Rome. And here is the image, very famous image. This is what it looks like. I know it's a little hard to see, but that's the famous Arch of Titus. The arch was erected by Titus to celebrate his victory over Israel, and the original inscription on the arch proclaims that it is dedicated to the divine Titus, Vespasianus Augustus, son of the divine Vespasian. Now, a number of years later, when Christianity rose in Rome, this scene of the Horban, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, and the defeat of Israel, served as the ultimate sign that the Jews were no longer God's chosen people. And that is a foundational message of classic Christianity. And the Arch of Titus served to further that understanding. Now, the Arch of Titus was created about 10 years after the actual events of the destruction of Jerusalem. So, many people, a number of people, presumably remembered seeing the original, which gives some credibility to the depiction of the menorah in that image. However, we have many earlier depictions of the menorah from Israel. Depictions that were created while the Beis Amigdash was standing. So, it's while the menorah was actually in use. Contemporaneously, these images were created on coins, ancient coins, in mosaics, many, many depictions of the menorah, and it looked 
like this. That's a mosaic. You've probably seen some of the ancient coins with that same image of the menorah on it. And these images from Israel made while the menorah was actually in use and being lit every day are all the same, no exceptions. And they differ from the one on the Arch of Titus because, I know it's a little hard to see, but the menorah on the Arch of Titus has a base at the bottom and the menorah from Israel is standing on a tripod. And the ones in Israel are all uniform. They all show the menorah standing on a tripod. Now, furthermore, now I know it's hard to see, and but the base of the menorah on the Arch of Titus the base has images of, it's either dragons or sea serpents, which were a known pagan image of that time, which is very hard to imagine or to understand existing on an object in the base Hamidrash in Jerusalem dedicated to serving one God. So, there are several answers for the discrepancy between these two different images of the menorah. For example, Rabbi Yitzchak Herzog, chief rabbi of Israel, he said his opinion was that the original base, the tripod, broke off during the voyage to Rome and the pedestal on the Arch of Titus was a replacement for the tripod base. It broke off, so they had to create a new base. Rabbi Daniel Sperber has a different opinion. He says, near the end of the Second Temple period, the original base was changed in order to introduce pagan motifs, which, by the way, is in line with the spiritual decline in Israel that led to the destruction of the Second Temple. Imagine if the people in charge themselves introduced pagan symbols into the Beis Hamikdash. That really was a sign that the end was at hand. Either way, the menorah on the arch is the assimilated version of the menorah. Now, when the modern state of Israel was established in 1948, one of the first questions was, what would the official emblem of Medina Israel look like? And they quickly decided on a menorah as the symbol, and they struck a committee to finalize the details. That committee had many, many meetings, proposals, drafts, and arguments. Finally, about nine months later, they finalized the design, 
on February 10th, 1949, the emblem of Israel was officially adopted. And that is the emblem that exists till this day. Now, the main argument going on during those nine months of meetings and arguments, the main argument was which menorah would be depicted. Would the menorah from the Arch of Titus be depicted? Or the menorah from ancient Israel? Would the menorah have a base with the serpents on it? Or would the menorah rest on a tripod? And this was a fascinating historical problem. Alec Mishori is an Israeli art historian, and he explains the rationale for including the depiction of the menorah from the Arch of Titus is that the menorah is returned from the Arch of Titus, where it symbolizes defeat, humiliation, and disgrace, and is installed in a place of honor on the emblem of the modern state, the establishment of which is testimony to the eternity of the Jewish people. So the reestablishment of Jewish sovereignty is the undoing of the scene on the Arch of Titus. That's the reason for those proposing to utilize the image from the Arch of Titus. But this was actually the subject of a bitter dispute. Rabbi Herzog and others argued vociferously against the assimilated menorah from the arch, from Rome, with its pagan imagery. How could you dare have that as a symbol of Israel? And they argued strongly in favor of the version found in Israel with the tripod, which conveyed not the secular, nationalistic message of the undoing of the Arch of Titus through the reestablishment of Jewish sovereignty, but the spiritual message of connecting the modern state of Israel with the glory of Israel during the era of the Beis Hamikdash with the original actual menorah, the way it was, the way it was lit every day by the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. It was a bitterly argued dispute. And it was not only over the design of the emblem. It was an argument over the identity of the state of Israel. And, as I'm sure you are aware, this is the emblem that was adopted. And this is the emblem of the state of Israel that represents Israel to us and to the world until today. And Alec Mishari writes, the emblem clearly shows that in the struggle between the secular camp which wanted to emphasize the state's socialist and democratic present and future versus the religious camp, 
which wished to stress the grandeur of the past and its link to the God of Israel, the former won. Because the emblem has the menorah from the Arch of Titus. And that dispute continues in Israel today in many forms with both sides in constant competition with each other. But tonight, on the eighth night of Hanukkah, let's focus for a moment on another view of this, another perspective on the representation of the menorah in Rome. Listen to this story by Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky. He writes, Soon after the Yom Kippur War, 1973, I visited Israel. The tiny nation had suffered heavy losses and morale was low. I'm sure you remember those times. I certainly do. On my return, he writes, I stopped in Rome and I walked in the forum among the ruins of the once mighty empire. I saw the Arch of Titus with the inscription, Judea Capta, Israel is defeated. And the bas relief of Roman soldiers carrying away the menorah from the temple in Jerusalem. That's the scene we've been discussing. But listen to the story. Underneath this scene was a chalk graffiti. Am Yisrael Chai. The Jewish nation lives. And Rabbi Torsky writes, yes. Any reasonable person would have predicted that the Roman Empire would live forever rather than Israel. Why did Israel survive? Because God chose a stiff-necked people. Because of Hanukkah. The determination and faith we celebrate on Hanukkah is truly the undoing of the Arch of Titus and all it represents. I just want to respond to a comment in the chat. Okay, so let me take a moment. Are we allowed to, to learn Torah on Christmas Eve? The answer is yes. I know that there are some people that have a custom not to study Torah on that night, but that is not our custom, and we will be studying Torah. Ah, someone asked a question. Does the menorah of the state of Israel on its base have the pagan signs as well? And the answer to that is, hold on, let me show you. What happened to my papers? Hold on. I have, I have too many papers here. The answer to that question is, yes, it does. <laughs> that was a main part of the dispute. It's, it's, I'll just say it's interesting, but yes, those signs are there on our modern emblem of Israel. All right. Let's now go in a different direction. 
as Hanukkah comes to a close, let's focus on what we can take with us from Hanukkah and utilize throughout the year. So I'm going to read something to you. It is the most boring list that you can imagine. And hopefully, we will draw out an inspiring message from this list that is relevant to every one of us every single day. The list that I want to read to you is a list of dates, the chronology of events of Hanukkah. Now, keep in mind, I'm going to give you the years BCE, before the Common Era, and the years descend, the numbers descend as we go forward. 353 BCE, the second base Amigdash is rebuilt. 353, that's the beginning of the Second Commonwealth. 319, just a few years later, is the beginning of the Greek era and Greek influence in Israel. 168, Antiochus desecrates the Beis Amigdash. 165 BCE, that is the partial conquest of the Maccabees, the miracle of the oil, the rededication of the Beit HaMikdash. So the Beis HaMikdash was actually, the service in the Beis HaMikdash was halted for three years, from 168 to 165 BCE. Okay, so the Hanukkah story is 165, but now listen. 162, three years after the Hanukkah story, Antiochus lays a siege around Jerusalem. 161, four years after Hanukkah, Dimitri, uh, Alchemus is appointed Kohen Gadol. I'll just give you an insight. Alchemist is not such a beautiful Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish name. <laughs> it was a person who was supported by the Greeks. It was a spiritual low point. 165 years after the Hanukkah story, Yehuda Maccabee killed in battle. 142. So we're now 23 years after Hanukkah. Yonasan Maccabee, Yehuda's brother, is killed. 140, 25 years after the Hanukkah story, is the beginning of the Hashmonoim dynasty. That is the beginning of Jewish control of Israel. It didn't happen for 25 years after the Hanukkah story. That's 140. 68 of the Common Era, or 70, that's the date sometimes given, of the Common Era. Jerusalem is destroyed. Beis Amigdash is destroyed by Rome. Okay, I understand. It's a boring list. But now listen to the message. The miracle of Hanukkah, the military triumph, the miracle of the oil, did not end the problems of the Jewish people. It did not usher in an era 
of resurgent Jewish life. The military triumphs that we celebrate on Hanukkah were only partially successful, and they were soon reversed. They didn't last. National sovereignty was not achieved for another 25 years after the establishment of Hanukkah as a holiday. And when it was established, it was very short-lived, just a few decades, until it was destroyed by the Romans. Nevertheless, we celebrate Hanukkah. And here's the lesson that comes from that. Many of us think about life in either-or terms. Something or someone is either good or bad. We think of ourselves as either happy or sad. Our observance of Torah and mitzvot is either complete or irrelevant. But that's not true. Hanukkah teaches us to appreciate small steps, baby steps. At the time of Hanukkah, the Beis Hamikdash was cleansed and rededicated. Some Jews came closer to God. Eventually, 25 years later, there were a few years of Jewish autonomy that served as a strengthening preparation for the tragic era of Roman influence that followed. At the time of Hanukkah, God showed his favor on our efforts through the miracle of the oil. It was not a complete victory. It was not a permanent redemption. But that is no reason to overlook Hanukkah's significance. Nor should we overlook any positive steps in our lives. Life is complex. Hanukkah teaches us to face that complexity without oversimplification. Hanukkah teaches us to celebrate small steps. And that is a very valuable lesson in a complex world. If we look at the list of dates I mentioned before without knowing about the holiday of Hanukkah, we might be hard-pressed to recognize that date, to recognize that moment as worthy of celebration because it's sandwiched with tragedy before and tragedy after. And certainly many miracles occurred and occur in our history that are not celebrated as holidays. The miracle of Hanukkah is not just about the miraculous jug of oil. The miracle of Hanukkah is that our rabbis recognized this baby step as a miracle worthy of being celebrated, held up and nurtured until the final redemption. Our celebration of Hanukkah should inspire us to be in the habit of searching for reasons to be grateful to God and for reasons to be grateful to each other. Let's turn now to this week's Parsha, the Parsha of Miketz, though the starting point is from last week's Parsha, Vayeshev, because this lesson is so fundamental 
to understanding what life is all about. And what I want to share with you is partially based on several essays by Bailey Newman. Last week's parsha began by Yeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Megure Aviv Be'eretz Canaan. Yaakov dwelled in the land where his fathers dwelled in the land of Canaan. Rashi tells us, Bikesh Yaakov Leshev Bashalva. Yaakov wanted to dwell in Shalva, in peace and tranquility and harmony. And it's understandable. Think about all Yaakov had already been through in his life. Running from Esav who, thought, who, who, who promised to kill him, having to stand up against love on his father-in-law and all the deceit that came from him. His beloved wife, Rachel, dies tragically in childbirth. He suffers tragedy and loss with the abduction of Dina and Shechem. And after all of these terrible things happen to him, and Yaakov finally is in Israel, all he wants is a chance to breathe, a chance to be still to live with shalva, to live with calm and harmony. But God says to Yaakov, that's a mistake. God says, is it not enough that you will have peace in the world to come? You also want peace in this world as well? And immediately, the Torah tells us about the tragedy of Yosef a tragedy that lasts for decades. And Yaakov is never the same after that. It seems so harsh. It seems like God is rebuking Yaakov for even wanting calm and peace. Why does this happen to Yaakov? When a person studies to become a therapist, there is a concept that they learn, and it is a concept that is necessary for therapists, for counselors, and it's really necessary for every human being, and that is to be able to be both in a state of unknowing and expertise in a position where they are emotionally resilient, but also unsettled, uncertain, unbiased, and humbled by the lived experience of the person and situation brought before them. The term for this is negative capability. Now, this term, negative capability, was coined by John Keats, the famous poet. He wrote a letter to his brother in 1817, and in that letter he describes his capacity to live with a sense of mystery and unknowing. He wrote, negative capability is when man is capable of being 
in uncertainties. When a man is capable of being in uncertainties and doubts, he allows as yet unimagined creative possibilities to emerge. Negative capability is about being without a template and yet being able not only to tolerate the position of not knowing, but shining and relishing in the uncertainty. The philosopher Martha Nussbaum explains it as follows. To be a good human is to have a kind of openness to the world, an ability to trust uncertain things beyond your own control. And that says something very important about the ethical life that is based on a trust in the uncertainty and on a willing and on a willingness to be exposed it's based on being listen to this more like a plant than a jewel something rather fragile but whose very particular beauty is inseparable from that fragility this idea is something we need to spend much of our life trying to learn. Jose Ortega wrote, Life is fired at us point blank. We cannot say, Hold it, I'm not quite ready. Wait until I've sorted things out. Decisions have to be taken when we're not ready for them. Aims have to be chosen when we cannot yet see clearly. We all think that what we need are answers. We all think that what we need is for everything to be clear, to be peaceful. But that's not true. What we really need to be a better person is to learn to live in and love the questions, the uncertainty. We need to learn we won't always have the right things emerge from our lips when a student or our beloved or the life we have been given is set before us. Listen to how Viktor Frankl expresses it. What man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for some goal worthy of him. What he needs is not the discharge of tension at any cost, but the call to a potential meaning waiting to be fulfilled by him. In this world, what is most needed is the capacity to act in a world where absolute clarity is not obtainable. God was not rebuking Yaakov for wanting to live a life of calm and certainty. God was teaching Yaakov that that is not what is best for him. What is best for Yaakov, what brings out the best in Yaakov, is challenge and uncertainty. God is not punishing Yaakov. God is 
loving Yaakov. And Yaakov in this is every one of us, perplexed by contingency, searching for philosophical and spiritual calm. Yaakov sought peace, but God told him he was mistaken. Yaakov didn't need shalva. He didn't need calm and peace. Yaakov needed to become more comfortable with discomfort and uncertainty. Every single one of us needs this lesson in order not to be repeatedly disappointed and frustrated by life, in order to appreciate what life is really about. And the person who learned this lesson the best was Yosef in our Parsha of Miketz. And it came to pass at the end of two full years, Paro was dreaming, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. What's the two years? What do you mean? At the end of two years, Paro dreamed. What two years is this first verse referring to? At the end of last week's Parsha, remember... Yosef had been falsely accused and put in prison. So Rashi says, Yosef was supposed to be in prison for 10 years. That was God's original plan. Yosef would be in prison for 10 years. However, at the very end of last week's Parsha, we read, after Yosef interpreted the dreams of the butler and the baker, and the dreams came true, and the butler went back to serve Paro. Yaakov said to the butler, But remember me when things go well with you, when you go back to service of Paro. And please do me a favor and remember me, remember me when you speak to Paro, and you will get me out of this prison. Our sages say that for this lapse of faith, that he asked the butler to get him out of prison and he did not rely on God, the darkness of prison lingered for another two years. Two years were added on to his sentence by God because of a lack of faith in God and an over-reliance on the butler saving him. Okay, there's a question. Let's put it to the side for a moment. One of the things that we've been studying together is that a person has to do hishtadlis. A person has to, to do whatever is in their power to help themselves. A person is not allowed to rely only on prayer, not allowed to rely on a miracle. What was wrong with asking the butler to help him get him out of prison? Okay, that's a difficult question. Let's leave that for another time for now. But our sages say, that the two years in our Parsha means at the end of the extra two years that Yosef was in prison because of his lack of faith in God. Now, listen to a different opinion. 
Rabbi Avraham, the son of the Rambam, the son of Maimonides. He writes something startling that is very different than the accepted interpretation. Rabbi Avraham writes that the two years extra that Yosef spent in prison were not a punishment. They were a blessing. What do you mean a blessing? To spend two extra years in prison is a blessing? What's going on? Listen to these words of Rabbeinu Yonah, one of our famous medieval writers. He wrote a famous work called Sharei Teshuvah. And he writes these following words. One who truly trusts in God should hope in the midst of his or her distress that the darkness will be the cause of his or her light. As our sages of blessed memory said, if I did not fall, I could not have arisen. If I had not been in darkness, it would not have been light for me. Listen to how Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav describes this process. When a person needs to ascend from one level to another, they must undergo a descent before the ascent. For the descent is for the purpose of the ascent. When the descent begins, we need to remember this is a stage in an unfolding process. After the descent, there will come an ascent. When we are in the pits and the prisons of our lives, God says to us, Trust me. We are not simply being punished with more time in the dungeon. God says to us, look harder for me. Rabbi Avraham teaches us that the extra two years that Yosef spent in prison were not a punishment. In fact, Yosef's redemption was only possible because of the two-year delay. I'll show you why. Think about what would have happened if the butler would have listened to what Yosef asked him to do. When Yosef asked him two years earlier, what would have happened? Well, the butler would have gone to Paro and he would have said, there's an innocent Jew in prison. He doesn't belong there. That's what Yosef asked. Had that happened two years earlier, what would have happened? Well, there's no way to know, but the best that could have happened, Paro would have given Yosef a royal pardon. But Paro would have never met Yosef. There would be no reason to meet Yosef. There would be no opportunity for Yosef to make any kind of impression on Paro. Okay, so that didn't happen. Rather, the butler forgot about Yosef. And it seemed that God also forgot about Yosef for two years. And then Paro dreamt his dreams two years later. 
And two years later, the butler suddenly remembers Yosef. And that meant that Yosef could stand before Paro and personally impress the ruler of the world and become his second in command and ultimately feed and reunite his holy family. All of that happened only because the butler remembered two years later. Now, a cursory, superficial look at the story of Yosef and also of our own lives might present us with a narrative of God abandoning us, rejecting us when we need his assistance the most. But when we look a little harder, we see that God isn't forgetting us in the darkness. He is placing us there for a reason. And when does Yosef see this? At the moment he hears Paro's dreams. Yosef hears Paro's dreams. Again, which only happens because the butler only remembered Yosef two years after he promised that he would. Paro dreams, seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, Paro dreams of seven fat stalks of grain, seven blighted stalks of grain. And Yosef tells Paro the interpretation about the seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And then Yosef says the most amazing thing. Vi'ata yere Paro ish navon v'chacham and now Paro, Yosef says to him, this fellow who just got taken out of prison that day, now Paro must seek out a person with insight and wisdom and place that person in charge of Egypt and in charge of this project of collecting all of the extra food in the first seven years and then distributing it during the seven years of famine. And Paro and his advisors considered it an excellent plan. And he said to his advisors, You think we're going to find anyone better than this fellow Yosef to take on this job? And Paro said to Yosef, You are the man. I am appointing you. You will be in charge of this effort. You will be the most powerful person in all of Egypt. Just under me, second in command. It seems ridiculous. What in Yosef's life qualified him to be the master over all of Egypt's food and second in command of the leading world power? Until the age of 17, Yosef has a privileged, coddled upbringing. Then he's a slave. And then he's a prisoner. What gave Yosef the crazy idea that he could come up with a plan to save Egypt and that he would be the one to execute it? It's crazy. 
But here's the key. Listen carefully. What gave Yosef the confidence, the sense of mission, could not have happened two years earlier. It was only because Yosef heard Pyro's dreams and he realized those dreams were not only Pyro's dreams, they were Yosef's dreams from when he was 17 years old at the beginning of last week's Parsha Vayeshev. Just like in our Parsha, Paro dreams of grain, Yosef, in last week's Parsha, dreamt of grain. Yosef dreamt as a 17-year-old boy about sheaves of grain bowing down to other sheaves of grain. Yosef dreamt about power through food. And now, Yosef was presented with the opportunity to enact both his own and Paro's dreams. And that's why he understood that there was a mission that he was being offered. He was being entrusted with a mission from God. And he had to be in prison those two extra years. Otherwise, he would not have seen it. He would not have had the opportunity God and Paro gave him. But he was, and he did. Yosef teaches us what God taught Yaakov. The purpose of life is to enhance uncertainty and challenge. Because the purpose of life is for us to grow from those experiences. For us to find our mission through those experiences. Every one of us faces this test individually in our lives and at times like now collectively. Our Parsha holds the key to navigating these roiling waters. My friends, I want to wish you a great evening, a beautiful Shabbos, an exciting end of Hanukkah, and I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person. I would love to hear any questions, what you think, what you agree or disagree, comments. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, thank you. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, everybody. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you all for joining. A week from tonight, we continue. I look forward to seeing you. Rabbi, it has such relevance for, like, the, the way you interpreted the Parsha today, of this, of this week. It's written just for us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a 
It is. It is. Is that your, is that your take on it? I mean, yes. I think, I think that this Parsha is speaking directly to us now in what we're going through and is giving us the key to being able to try to navigate. It's not easy, but this is the key to how to do it. That's amazing. It's, it's really good. It I is. All this stuff that you're recording and everything, I hope you put this together. I mean, you know, down the road, I mean, a real, you know, COVID custom. I mean, just really, everything yes. you, you do is just so relevant. Thank you so much. You're very, thank you, Ricky. I could not do it without you. Without you, it would not happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, Jewel. What about people who do live a life of shalva? Should they be seeking out uncertainty? Should they be? No, I think I, I think everybody should be grateful for whatever amount of shalva they have. But I, but I want to tell you something. I don't think there's anyone who has a life that is only shalva. I I, I I've never met such a person. Yes. I have a question. Yes. Uh, as a psychologist. Yes, you are. Yeah. When when we work with people, um, what's very current now and what drives I think a lot of people is the mindfulness to stay in the present. Yes. That's similar to that living with the uncertainty. Exactly. If you're not willing to open yourself to uncertainty, you cannot be in the present if your present is uncertain. So that's a very important part of this. Yes. Definitely. Sharon, Sharon, you yeah. said last time you told the uh, experience with your father, who's 99 years old. I want to tell you that really struck me. It struck me too. I repeated it and it stayed with me. I also repeated it to someone. Yeah. Yeah, I was very grateful to you for repeating that. Yeah. We and we wish him and you well. We wish you all well. It's the only thing that he said for months. Wow, it's it was so moving. I said that to somebody. It was just, it was uh, uh, tingling. Wow. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Enjoy the end of Hanukkah. Thank you very very much. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Good night, everybody.